We are so grateful for all the kind Christmas cards you guys have sent to us and emails. It's been such a blessing. Thank you so much for your ongoing encouragement. Also, um, we would like to send some condolences out. Sadie Oshashanik passed away. So we want to um, send our condolences to the family and keep praying for the Williams family too as uh, David lost his dad a little while ago. So keep them in prayer as well. Grief share. Um, is a, would like to start up January 14th. If you're interested in grief share, please contact the church office. Also, we also have some great news. Pastor Garrett and Danica had a baby boy on New Year's Eve. So we just want to say congratulations to them. Not New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, I believe it was. Sorry. And the baby's name is Dylan. So that's a New Year's baby. So we're so excited and we can't wait to see that baby. Also, uh, we're just going to bow our heads in prayer and just give our service to the Lord. God, we thank you so much for this new year, God. And we just commit this new year into your hands, Jesus. And we pray, Father, uh, that you would cover um, this, this new year in protection, God. And we thank you so much for the new birth of Garrett and Danica's baby, Dylan, Lord. And we just pray for that baby, God, that uh, the baby can grow up to love you and to serve you. And we just thank you that delivery was a success and the baby is healthy, Father. And Lord, uh, we recognize, God, that uh, even though Garrett and Danica celebrate uh, a new birth, Lord, there are people who are mourning losses of loved ones as well, too, Lord. And we pray for um, Sadie's family who are mourning her right now, God. And we pray that you would comfort them, Lord. And we pray for the Williams family as well, too, God. We just pray that uh, you would grant them peace in their hearts as well, too, Lord. And God, I pray for Pastor Mark this morning, Lord. I ask that your Holy Spirit would just speak to him, Father, and uh, that you would give him the words to say, Lord. And God, we just thank you, Father, for the way you're moving in this church. And we just commit this service into your hands. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All right, right now we have our kids' moment with yours truly, uh, filming from my home. And uh, we're going to pass it on to Pastor Mark. Thank you. Good morning, and I'd like to wish you a happy new year as well. Uh, this morning, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Uh, as we begin this new year, what better way to start it off than with a new sermon series, learning more uh, truth from the Word of God. Uh, and if you're looking for it, the book of Jonah is found in the Old Testament among the books we call the Minor Prophets. Uh, but when we say Minor Prophets, what we mean is that these are books that are shorter than the major prophets. So it's not that what the prophet had to say or who he was was any less important than anybody else. Uh, it's just they wrote shorter books. Uh, and yet the book of Jonah is also very much unlike, it's unlike all of those other minor prophet books because Jonah is a narrative. And it's focused not so much on the message as much as the book of Jonah is focused on the story around getting the message preached. And even though I think 
I think the book of Jonah tends to be sort of one of the favorite stories we learn in Sunday school. Uh, there's also sometimes some big misunderstandings when it comes to Jonah as well. Uh, and I like what John, o- uh, John Ortberg once wrote when he says, Jonah tends to be mainly associated with one other character, Jonah and the whale. And most people seem to think that the whale's name is Monstro and Jonah is running away from Geppetto and wants to grow up to be a little boy. And uh, the details tend to get fuzzy at that point. Uh, so at this morning, let's begin to clear some of those details up uh, as we begin this sermon series together. And as I often do when I start a new series, I want to encourage you just to try to be reading through the book of Jonah once, maybe twice a week as we work our way through this book in the weeks ahead. Uh, just try, try to be getting into the Word of God and just studying this on your own time. It'll just add so much more. Uh, you'll get so much more out of it uh, as we look through it uh, in the next couple weeks. And this morning is going to serve mostly sort of as an introduction to the book as we just look at the first three verses. And you can follow along with me if you'd like. So Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare there. And went down into it. And to go, uh, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we begin this new year, and Lord, even as we begin this new sermon series, we just pray that, Lord, your presence would be with us uh, everywhere that we go. And Lord, we know there, there is no place where we can flee from your presence. For you are everywhere. But Lord, we just pray that you would uh, just make yourself known to us. Um, in the days ahead and even in this time together, that, Lord, you would reveal yourself to us. And, Lord, as we open up this book of Jonah, we pray that you would speak to us through it, Um, that we would be mindful to your Holy Spirit trying to speak to us uh, through these words, uh, speaking truth into our lives that will change us and transform us and and shape our lives. Um, And that, Lord, you would be revealed to us in a very powerful way. Pray that, Lord, you would come and be our teacher, Uh, first and foremost this morning. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, I confess, I do have to confess, when it comes to Jonah, uh, this is a sermon series I'm pretty excited about. I love this book. Jonah's a great book. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor, I'm actually preaching on this book. Jonah is just, it's one of those books that just captures the imagination of people, young and old. Uh, you know, and it covers the, a range of themes from resistance to obedience, from stubbornness to repentance, from anger and bitterness, all the way to grace and thanksgiving. And even though the book itself is only 58 verses long, these few verses contain no less than a hasty getaway, a storm at sea, a miraculous rescue. A quantity of fish vomit. Uh, There's a song of praise. There's a great prayer. And there's even this repentance of an entire city. And the book of Jonah really does reveal to us so much about 
the nature of God's relationship to people. It talks about how God relates to Israel, but also about how he relates to Gentiles, how he relates to, to Israel's great enemies. Uh, talks about how it relates to, to sinners and even to creation itself. There's a lot that is being packed into this book. But at the same time, this book is not sort of heady and it's not a complicated read because, best of all, Jonah is a book people relate to. Uh, in fact, I think that the book is actually written in such a way that we're asked to sort of picture ourselves in Jonah's shoes. So whether you're familiar with the story of Jonah or not, and you're just hearing it for the first time, I hope you can get excited right along with me about the next couple of weeks in looking at this book. And we begin digging in uh, as we do so with this rather straightforward introduction to our protagonist, Jonah. Jonah 1 verse 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. This verse basically tells us that Jonah, Jonah was a prophet. Uh, Jonah was one of those individuals that God, God himself sets apart and he says, I'm going to use your life to speak my message to my people. Um, and this is actually not the first time in the Bible we, we read or hear about Jonah as a prophet. Uh, if you want to keep your fingers in the book of Jonah, you can also turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 14, uh, verses 23 to 25. And as we look, go to those verses, just a quick history lesson uh, before we jump there. Uh, because at this point in Jewish history, we have what we call a divided kingdom. Now, under King David and King Solomon, the nation of Israel was united. Uh, all 12 of the tribes of Israel were combined in one nation. But after King Solomon, that nation broke apart. Uh, and the two southern tribes uh, formed what we call the nation of Judah. And the other 10 northern tribes uh, were now known as the nation of Israel. It was, and each of those was a separate nation with its own king. And it's that northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, where Jonah as a prophet was called to minister. So we read about that in 2 Kings 14, verses 23 to 25. We read about one of the kings of Israel. It says this, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned for 41 years. And he did evil, what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all of the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. And he restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah. And this is what's important. He did that according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Now as you hear that, I want you to catch this. Because most of the time, I would think being a prophet of God was a really tough job. Uh, I mean, you had to confront people about sin. You had to tell kings that God was unhappy with them and, and, the, and their lives. You had to foretell disasters and famines and plagues and, you know, all kinds of horrible stuff. But as I said, that's only most of the time because here's Jonah the prophet. And God shows up and says, you know what, Jonah, go and tell the king. Even a king as evil as this one, as bad as this one, go tell the king that I am going to greatly bless him 
and his nation. I'm going to increase his land. I'm going to give him military victories to expand his nation. I'm going to restore basically the glory of Israel that that had been lost by the previous kings. Basically, this this king, uh, Jeroboam II, as history was going to record him, he's going to be the mightiest, most successful king Israel ever had when it came to expanding their national borders. Now, I would think that to a prophet, that is probably the best job ever. Like, go up, Go up and tell the king really good news. That's a plum posting for a, for a prophet. It's a super cushy assignment, to say the least. I mean, when you show up with a message like that, the king takes your calls. Uh, you would be welcome at any party. You'd be invited to fancy dinners. Like, there's Jonah. He says nice things about me. Uh, you'd be an honored guest in the throne room of the king. So as a prophet, I think Jonah kind of knows the good life. Uh, it seems like Jonah is kind of used to smooth sailing when it comes to being a prophet of God. That is, until the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again with a new message. And it was a message that is going to change Jonah's life forever. And it's found in verse 2, where God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For the evil has come up before me. Now, even as you look at that verse, I mean, at first glance to me, that doesn't sound like all that strange a request. I mean, God says, go and preach against wickedness, which seems to me like a very prophety kind of thing that God asks prophets to do. But to really, I think, understand what God is asking here, we have to understand a little bit about the city of Nineveh itself. Uh, Nineveh was the capital city of what was known as the Assyrian Empire. And by all accounts, the Assyrians were awful people. Uh, In Jonah's time, Assyria was sort of the, it was the emerging world superpower at that time. And it was on its way to unmatched, uncontested power, unrivaled for probably the next century or so. And the Assyrians, as as an empire, as a people, they seemed to have one talent that really sort of set them apart from everyone else. And that was just the way that they excelled at sheer cruelty towards their enemies. You see, when the Assyrians attacked your city, they didn't just burn your crops. They would actually take the time to plant thistles and salt the earth afterwards to ensure that nothing else could grow for years afterward. But that was nothing compared to to what they did to the people that they conquered. And it's actually hard to even talk about this without sort of getting into almost an R-rated sermon. They were so horrible. Uh, The Assyrians used to skin their enemies alive and use them to decorate the city walls. They would cut off their enemies' heads and there's records of them hanging them on the trees around the city like Christmas ornaments. They had parades where captives were forced to carry their dead relatives through the street. They liked to cut off noses and ears and pull out tongues and lop off feet. But it was said that they would leave the person with one hand still attached so that they could shake that person's hand as they died. And far from being embarrassed by such things, the Assyrians were actually proud of it. Uh, They used to decorate their homes and their palaces with scenes of violence. They didn't just, you know, have 
pictures of their family and landscapes hanging on their walls. They had, there's actually pictures of executions that have been found. You know, spikes with severed heads. Torture to them was an art form. They actually kept records of the dead and dismembered, almost like a scorecard, as if they, they could outdo themselves the next time. So when you think of Assyria and the capital city of Nineveh, you need to think of a people who are cruel beyond your imagination, with no mercy and no compassion and no grace for their enemies. Even at a time in history that was known for violence and savagery, the Assyrians were something else. They were the next level entirely. The prophet Nahum actually writes about the city of Nineveh. In Nahum chapter 3, he says, beginning in verse 1, he says, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. And then skipping down to verse 19 of Nahum 3. It says, Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? That's the city of Nineveh. And now, hear Jonah's, God's word to Jonah one more time. It says, Arise and go to Nineveh that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. Now, understanding Nineveh a little better, do those words now take on a little bit of a new meaning? Because I think you can imagine why Jonah might be hesitant to go. Because if the Ninevites didn't, didn't like what Jonah had to say, and again, these are probably sort of not the most open-minded people. I don't think that the, the Assyrians would think twice about killing him or even worse. And as we just heard, for, you know, worse for Jonah could have been a whole lot worse than just being killed. But here's something else I think we need to think about here. Because the Ninevites, again, were the mortal enemies of Israel at that time. Jonah would have had no love for these people who basically they love to plunder and kill his people. So maybe worse than thoughts of Jonah's own suffering in Jonah's mind was this idea of, what if I'm actually successful? What if Nineveh does repent and God doesn't rain down punishment and judgment upon them? What if Jonah's message actually works and Nineveh is saved? You see, that was Jonah's fear too. It's, it's really, Jonah is now put in a no-win situation. If he fails, he's likely to be killed in the nastiest way imaginable. And if he succeeds, he's probably going to save the lives of his most hated enemies. From Jonah's perspective, this is worst case scenario. So what's a prophet to do? Well, Jonah comes up with a hasty plan. Verse 3. It says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Jonah flees. And he flees as fast as he possibly can in the exact opposite direction that God wants to send him in. 
And the Hebrew here basically says, God says, Jonah, get up and go. And Jonah got up and fled. And so begins this journey, this, this battle of wills between Jonah and God that takes up the rest of the book. And at times it's funny, at times it's, it's actually quite sad. But I think in many ways, this battle between Jonah and God, it hits all too close to home for many of our lives. Because I think we all kind of know what it's like to try and run from God at times. I think we all know what it's like to sort of resist God in some way in our lives. We all have moments when we think, you know what, God, I I think I'm going to handle this one on my own. And I think this is one of the brutal truths of this book of Jonah, actually. Because, you know, on the one hand, we have God who wants to do something great through Jonah's life and in Jonah's life. And you know what, if, if we have one word in the book of Jonah that describes what God is up to, it's the word great. Uh, it's harder to see in English, and it kind of depends on your translation as well. But in the Hebrew, the original Hebrew, that word great is used over and over again as you work your way through the book. It talks about the great city. It talks about a great wind and a great storm. It talks about great fear, a great captain, a great reverence. There's a great fish. There's a great people. And even at the end, there's great joy. Uh, the picture here is really that God is doing great things. But on the other hand, you have Jonah wanting to do things his way. And if there's one word that kind of describes how Jonah is making out, it's the word down. We're told Jonah goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. And eventually he goes down into the sea and then down the fish's throat. Um, Jonah, the picture is Jonah is really caught up in a downward spiral. He's going from bad to worse until he literally hits bottom in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the sea. And only then, at rock bottom, does he finally surrender. And again, I'm pretty sure I've done that too. In my life, there have been times when I've experienced that downward spiral of disobedience, where I just, I stubbornly refused to let God lead. And I kept making the same mistakes, kept get stuck in the same places, kept slipping in the same cesspools of sin, All the while, God offered a better way, a greater way, a greater life, a greater hope, a greater joy to me, but I refused to take hold of it until I came to the end of myself. As I look at my life, I realize I have been a Jonah. And how much easier it would have been if I had just surrendered and obeyed God from the start. But that's a lesson we all have to learn for ourselves. And Jonah is going to have to find that out for himself as well. Because God is up to something here. And it's bigger than Jonah. And it's bigger than the pity party that he's going to throw for himself. See, God has a plan for Nineveh. And it's actually not to send down fire and brimstone. It's not to wipe them on the map, off the map. No, God is sending Jonah to Nineveh because God has it in his heart to show that city as wicked as that city was. God has it in his heart to show that city And those people, mercy. God wants to show them his grace. God wants to offer them an opportunity for repentance and forgiveness. And Jonah, when he finally arrives in the city, after speaking a message of no more than six words, 
Jonah actually sees what may have been the greatest repentance in Gentile history to that point. Which you'll remember was one of Jonah's worries from the very start. And after the the city repents, Jonah even says, reading from Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, but it greatly, uh, no, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And I don't want you to miss this point. Because Jonah says it all. God is a God of love for all people. He is a God of mercy. He is a God who offers grace. He is a God of forgiveness. Eternally and fully and completely. And that's not going to change because God's character never changes. God's love endures forever. And yet, for some reason, Jonah's not happy about that. In fact, some have even described the entire story of Jonah as a rebellious prophet who hated God for loving his enemies. And the dots that I really want to connect for you this morning as we introduce this book of Jonah is that you cannot begin to understand the book of Jonah until you understand that God is an unwavering, unflinching, unconditional God of love to all people. That God would love not just the greatest, but he would love the least. That God would not just love those who are kind, but even those who are cruel. That God would not just love those who we think are deserving of his love, but he would love the undeserving as well. And that he loves them and that he loves us all fully and unconditionally. And to be honest, A love like that can make some people uncomfortable. Because I know, you know what, we're we're okay with God loving babies and puppies and nice people. But the thought of God loving bad people, God loving the villains, God loving someone like Joseph Stalin or Hitler, God loving those terrorists who flew their planes into the trade buildings, God loving people who hurt other people, God loving the people who hurt you, God-loving serial killers or pedophiles? That's a lot harder for us to swallow. And you may say, you know what, I'm not really comfortable with that. Well, then you need to rent yourself a boat and call yourself Jonah because that's the point. That is the scandalous truth of the book of Jonah. That if God can love Nineveh, God can love anyone. That God's love is bigger than our comfort zones. God's love is wider than our prejudices. God's love is greater than any one of us can even begin to comprehend. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, he says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. 
The love of God is a love so great and so wonderful and so full that in the end it defies our understanding. It is a love that is wide enough to include all of humanity. It's long enough to stretch from everlasting to everlasting. It's high enough to reach the heavens themselves and it's deep enough to love even the greatest sinner. It's a love beyond our understanding. One of my favorite hymns is called The Love of God. And it's my favorite hymn for this one verse that says this. Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. This is a love so big, no one could ever take it in. And if there's one message that I would really like you just to take hold of in your hearts this morning, it would be this. This is the application this morning. That God loves you. And God loves you. Period. Full stop. No fine print. No hidden fees. God loves you more than you can ever imagine. And he knows your flaws. He knows the mistakes you've made. He knows your deeds. He knows everything you've ever said, everything you've done. He knows the people that you've hurt. He knows the selfishness of your heart. He knows your deepest and darkest thoughts. And he still loves you. God loves you even when you find yourself in a place where it's hard to love yourself. And this is how you know it. 1 John 4, verses 9 to 10 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you on the cross. God loves you so much that he would suffer in your place just to give you a chance to be forgiven. And if you want to make that forgiveness your own, if you would like to respond in your heart and just receive what God is offering you, you can do that, even right now this morning. Uh, you don't have to be here present in the church. You don't need a pastor beside you. You can make that your own right now, right where you are. You can just pray to this God who loves you so completely and confess that Confess your sin. Confess that you are a sinner. That, that you live your life in rebellion. You've gone your own way. You've done things your whole life your own way. And you've been running from God. And then believe. Believe that Jesus is Lord and that he is God and that he loves you more than you can ever imagine. And that he died on the cross for your sins and paid that debt himself. Paid it in your place. Believe that and then ask him for forgiveness. And then just surrender to him. 
Surrender and being willing to follow him where he leads you. Be willing to start growing in this new relationship you can have with him. Be willing to let God just begin to do a great work in your life. A work that he so greatly desires to do as he makes you his own. And I would encourage you, even now, you can do that. You can ask God for forgiveness and he'll give it to you and offer you eternal life. Because that's why Jesus came. And that's really the thought, I think, that should move us to the communion table again this morning. This morning, as we come to the communion table, we are called to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. We remember the broken body and the shed blood. And they are a reminder to us how much we are loved by God. Because the same love that moved God's heart for the people of Nineveh moved God's hearts for us as well when he sent Jesus Christ to the cross to be our Savior. And again, it was a love not just for people who were his friends. It was not just love that was reserved for people who treated him kindly. It was not love that was exclusive just to members of his family. Instead, Christ's love was first and foremost for us. It was for sinners. In fact, Romans 5.8 says it clearly, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners. Just like you and just like me. Sinners who, who should have been totally and completely unlovable and unworthy of love, especially the love of God. But none of that would stop God from showing his love for us through his son. And make no mistake, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was the greatest act of love ever. The cross was a horrible death. And it consisted of progressively painful series of events. Jesus was ridiculed and mocked and spat upon. He was given 40 lashes with the cat of nine tails that literally ripped the flesh from his back. He was then forced to carry a heavy wooden cross to a place where he would be nailed to it. Where they drove large spikes through his hands and his feet. And when they dropped that cross into the hole to support it, Jesus' shoulders and his joints would have been pulled out of place. And he would have had to work tirelessly just to get his next breath while he hung naked for the whole world to see his shame. It was the kind of death the Assyrians would have loved for its pain and its cruelty. And yet all the while, Jesus knew what was going to take place. Before he was born, Jesus knew he was headed to the cross. And even facing that kind of death, he still came And he was still willing to die on the cross in order to offer us all his grace. And that is the overriding message of the book of Jonah. It is the love of God looking at a city of savages, looking at a city full of sinners, looking at a group of people who would live their lives as the enemies of God himself and having God say to that city, I love them. And I'm ready to forgive them. And I want to have compassion on them. 
And that's what God did. And God even went out of his way to make it happen by wrestling with this sort of wiry, mule-headed prophet named Jonah until he was ready to finally take that message to them and speak the words of life. But you know, that's the thing about God. The thing I think we need to understand about God is that he is out there constantly searching for us. It's been said in every other religion, whether it's Islam or Buddhism or whatever, in every other religion, you are expected to find your way to God. It's only in the Bible that we learn about a God, a God of love who is actively looking for us. And that's why God acted. That's why Jonah eventually spoke those words of life to the city of Nineveh. And that's the message I hope God is speaking to you this morning as well. So hear it again. God loves you. And God desires to offer you forgiveness. God wants to show you his mercy and his grace even today. Because it was Philip Yancey that said these words. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you could do to make God love you less. You are already loved as much as an infinite God is able to love you. So just in closing, there's a great song by Michael W. Smith that says it so well. He says, I have been unfaithful. I have been unworthy. I have been unrighteous. I have been unmerciful. I have been unreachable. I have been unteachable. I have been unwilling. I have been undesirable. I have been unwise. But because of you and all you went through, I know that I have never been unloved. Never forget that truth. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you love us. And that it's a love for us that should overwhelm us probably more than it already does. For you loved the world so much that you sent your son to die on the cross in our place. That while we were sinners, you still died for us. And this book of Jonah, Lord, is a lesson in that truth. That that you love even those who seem unlovable. That you love us, even even at those times when we have a hard time loving ourselves. Lord, your love for us, it never dims and it never fades. And that, Lord, you didn't just love us, but you also took the next step to offer us a way to be forgiven. A way to be free. A way to have a relationship with you that no longer is clouded by sin because you took care of sin. And that you love us so much you allow us to find a new life in you. And that that life is a life that we will live into eternity. And that through Jesus and the cross, we can know the greatest love of all. And that, Lord, even as that song said, Lord, even when we feel unworthy, we can know that we have never been unloved because we just need to look at the cross to know the truth of your love for us. And Lord, as we come to this communion table again this morning, may your love for us, may your mercy, may your forgiveness 
just be so real to us in this moment. That it would just, that it would wash over us like a wave of grace and overwhelm us with the truth of your love for us. And I just pray, Lord, as we come to the communion table again, that you would make our hearts ready to receive it as it comes to us, Lord. And make us ready to come to this table um, and experience your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we're just going to take a few minutes break, um, give you some time to prepare your hearts, but also if you need to take some time to get some communion elements together, uh, if you have juice or, and bread or whatever drink or, or food you have, uh, get it together so we can celebrate communion together in just a few minutes. And if you're all ready, just take the time to prepare your heart quietly before the Lord. Let's take a short break.